You are listening to the audio podcast of the weekly message preached at Central United Methodist Church in Arlington, Virginia. You're invited to worship with us in person on Saturdays at 4.30 p.m. or virtually through Zoom or Facebook on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. Visit us at www.cumcballston.org. There you can learn more about our congregation and how we worship God, serve others, and embrace all. The reading today is from Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, the genealogy of Jesus. A record of the ancestors of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Aram. Aram was the father of Amminadab. Amminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Solomon. Solomon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah was the father of Asaph. Asaph was the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram. Joram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Amos. Amos was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. This was at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shedeel. Shedeel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abiad. Abiad was the father of Eliakim. Eliakim was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok was the father of Kim. Akim was the father of Elud. Elud was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar was the father of Methan. Methan was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. So there are 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 generations from the exile to Babylon to the Christ. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to to God. God. Thank you, Lane, for reading our scripture this evening. You might wonder, why would Matthew begin the good news of the birth of Christ with such a long and cumbersome list of names? It's especially curious in light of how the other Gospels begin. If we look at the Gospel of John, it starts, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Luke starts off by saying to Theophilus, I'm writing this so that you will know with certainty of the things about which you've been instructed. And Mark, well, Mark doesn't waste any time. He gets right to the point and he says, Jesus Christ is the son of God. That's the genealogy in Mark. God, Jesus. But instead, in Matthew, we have 14 generations and then another 14 generations and then another 14 generations. He is being very specific and purposeful. See, the audience that Matthew had in mind was a Jewish audience. And genealogies were a way of showing connections, helping people to remember how they related and so they could remember the story that they were a part of. 
Matthew wanted his hearers to know how this story he was telling connected to their lives. The genealogy that names Jesus as a descendant of Abraham would have connected this story to every other Jewish person listening because they were all descendants of Abraham. It also reminds those who hear this story of God's original promise to Abraham and Sarah that through their lineage, all the nations of the world would be blessed. Secondly, we see that Jesus is a descendant of King David, and that brings to mind the nostalgia of the golden age of David's reign. It would have also brought to those original hearers the reminder of the hope from the prophets about that promised time that there would be one day when a descendant of David once again took the throne. Matthew's genealogy is telling the hearers how this story connects to them and their lives, and it tells us how it connects to our lives today. Now, it is very interesting to note that among that long list of men's names, Matthew includes five women. That was unusual in and of itself. But if you noticed, he named Abraham, not Abraham and Sarah. He didn't select one of the matriarchs of faith like Sarah and Leah and Rachel. Instead, he selected five very astonishing women to include in this family tree. The first was Tamar. She was a widow, the daughter-in-law of Judas, Judah, I'm sorry, the daughter-in-law of Judah. Her husband was killed for doing evil, and she was left alone as a widow. And in the ancient Near East, that meant that she would have had no income, no way of owning property, no way of being protected from the world. And so in that culture, Judah had a responsibility to care for his daughter-in-law, but he failed to fulfill his duty to care for her. He should have given her a new husband from one of his other sons. And when he failed to do that, Tamar took matters into her own hands. She covered her face with a veil so Judah would not recognize her. Then Tamar pretends to be a prostitute and seduces him, and then she gets pregnant. In some ways, she's a victim in this story, and she had to use her ability to be conniving in order to get Judah to fulfill his obligation to provide a husband for her. But the fullness of that story doesn't really sound like someone that you'd want to lift up in a family tree to establish amazing credentials for a king. And then there's the second woman named Rahab, also a prostitute, living in the city of Jericho when Palestine was being conquested. She hid Hebrew spies, and so she helped to spare their army. In the New Testament... James said she was an example of good works. The writer of Hebrews wrote, By faith, the prostitute Rahab welcomed spies, and she was not killed with those who were disobedient. Even though she did these wonderful actions, it's still a pretty bold move to include a prostitute in Jesus' royal genealogy, don't you think? And then we get to Ruth. Ruth. 
When her husband died, her mother-in-law had a conversation with her, and she tried to tell her to go and to go back to her pagan lands and her pagan family. If we look back in scripture, it says, Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law is returning to her people and to her gods. Turn back after your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied to Naomi, don't urge me to abandon you, to turn back from following after you. Wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do this to me and more, so if even death separates me from you. It's vital to understand how significant this was, that Ruth was a Moabite woman, a person from a pagan nation. You wouldn't normally include an outsider in your list of ancestors that was supposed to establish your credibility to the nation of Israel. And yet, there is Ruth the Moabite. Next, we see another foreigner, Bathsheba. She was married to Uriah the Hittite. And we don't actually see her name. She's just identified by Matthew as Uriah's wife. But if we turn back to the book of 2 Samuel, we know that her story, we know her full story, and her name was Bathsheba. In this section of scripture, it goes into great detail about the affair that she and King David have when she got pregnant and King David's attempt to cover up the scandal. First, King David called her husband home from the battlefields of war in the hopes that he could cover up the pregnancy and pretend it really belonged to Uriah. And then when that plot failed, he actually sent Uriah back to the battleground to make sure that he died. Matthew's Jewish audience would have known all the details of this great scandal of King David and Bathsheba, and yet there she is in the genealogy. And then finally, the fifth woman. There is Mary, the one who claims to be pregnant without the help of her fiancé, Joseph, and all the scandal that that brought upon their family. These are not the kind of women whose names you expect to find in a list of ancestors who is a point to establish the amazing genealogy and family tree of the Savior of the world. But of course, that must be Matthew's point. Jesus isn't entering into a perfect and pristine story of idealized people. He is entering into the real world, filled with broken and messy families, as well as noble ones, normal folks, as well as kings and priests and heroes. He is coming from a lineage of both Jews and Gentiles, of outsiders like the Moabite Ruth, and of people who were insiders like King David. Matthew doesn't include the model mothers like Sarah and Rachel, Rebecca and Leah. Instead, we get new matriarchs to show how the love of God goes deep to forgive our sins, and it goes wide to include the outsiders. 
Look at who is included. A seducer, a prostitute, an adulteress, a pregnant single mom, a Canaanite, a Moabite, and the wife of a Hittite. Christian speaker Tony Campolo tells a story about a time when he went to Honolulu for a conference, and he was sleepless one night because of the jet lag, so he went for a walk and he found a diner that was still open. It was quite late, but he ordered a cup of coffee and sat in the diner. Pretty soon, some women came in and they were talking pretty loudly, and Tony figured out that they were prostitutes. They were talking to one another, and one of them, whose name was Agnes, says, tomorrow's my birthday. The other woman responded, well, what do you want me to do, throw a party? Agnes said, no, I've never had a party before. I was just saying, that's all. And when the two women finished the food they ordered, they left. Tony asked the server behind the counter, do those ladies always come in about this time of night? The server said that they did. Tony asked, can I bring a cake and some decorations tomorrow and throw Agnes a party? And the man said, sure, why not? So the next night, Tony brought a cake. And when the women walked into that diner, the locals joined him in singing happy birthday. And he gave Agnes the cake with her name on it. She started to cry and she said, no one's ever thrown me a party before. Could I take this cake and show my mom? And Tony, of course, said, yes, take the cake. It's for you. And then he offered a prayer for Agnes before she left. When the party was over, the man behind the counter asked, are you some kind of preacher? And Tony said that he was. And the man continued to ask, well, what kind of church do you go to? Tony answered, the kind that throws birthday parties for prostitutes. The man countered, no, you don't, because there's no church like that. If there was... I'd go to it. Isn't that what the Gospel of Matthew is telling us? That Jesus is exactly the type of person who would want to throw a birthday party exactly for that lady, Agnes. Because those are the people in his family tree. We are called to be that kind of church. The kind of church that reaches out to those who are hurting and broken and spiritually hungry, who long to know the love of God made real in their life. In this season of preparation for Christmas, when there's lots of parties going around, when some might even think about throwing a birthday party for Jesus next week, I wonder, who would Jesus want us to invite to his birthday? Looking at his family tree gives us a really good idea of the folks that Jesus would want to include on his guest list. And it makes me wonder, what do we need to do to plan a party for all the people in Jesus's family so that they all know God's love for themselves? That's the question that I wonder this week as I plan for Jesus's birthday next Saturday. May our eyes and our ears and our hearts be open to the people who Jesus wants us to invite to his birthday party. Amen.